right, today's reading is from Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You can be seated. Amen. Thank you. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we jump into his word this morning. Father, we're grateful to be together. We're grateful to gather together as your people this morning. Lord, I pray that your word would go out and not return void this morning. May your word, as we dive into this particular topic, may your Holy Spirit encourage us. May you convict us. We pray that you would do a work in us. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to be faithful. I pray you'd help us to be faithful as your people as we receive your word today, that you get all the glory and praise and honor and that we would do what you call us to do, that we'd be who you call us to be and make much of you here in Fairfax, in our state, in our country, to the ends of the earth. And so we pray that that would be the case today, that you would use the preaching of your word towards that end this morning. Thank you for your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Recently, uh, one of my boys was over at my parents' house, just kind of hanging out. It's a a gift to our family that my parents live close by, and he was over there hanging out. Uh, But when he came home, my mom sent him home with something else. So you have to understand that I still have a lot of my stuff at my parents' house. Stuff like, uh, you know, memorabilia, trophies, high school yearbooks, things of that nature. And my mom regularly asks me when I'm going to take my stuff to my house instead of leaving it at her house, which I some way always seem to wiggle out of actually taking any of it home. But she figured out if she brought, gave it to my son to bring home, then it was going to be a little bit difficult to get it back to her house. Well, this particular time, she sent my son home with something, two unopened Wheaties cereal boxes. Now, I ate a lot of Wheaties growing up, but I didn't keep cereal boxes just because of the fondness uh, I had for the cereal. These were two specific special boxes of Wheaties. On one of them was Cal Ripken, Hall of Fame infielder for the Baltimore Orioles, and this box was commemorating when he broke the record for the longest consecutive games started in Major League Baseball, 2,131 games, which happened on September 6th, 1995. The other box also has a baseball star on it, Mark McGuire, when he broke the single-season home run record once held by Roger Maris, hitting a total of 70 home runs in the 1998 season. Now, I love baseball now. I loved it then. And I had these up in my room for a long time, probably up until I either went off to college or got married. And, and they were something I really valued. I mean, they were sitting out. It was something that was in my room along with a lot of other things. And part of it was also that I thought one day, maybe they actually might be worth something. Well, the reality is I must not have valued them that much because I kept them at my parents' house instead of bringing them to my house. Though, when they did come to my house and my wife said, well, can we just chuck these? I was like, no. (laughs) These might be worth something someday. 
Though, as I looked up, they're only worth about $7 to $15, depending on who you ask. It's interesting to me, though, how we can each place different value on different things. To one person, something can be prized and cherished, but to another person, that very same thing could be considered trash or clutter. And it's not just with memorabilia. I mean, our culture, in kind of an ever-changing, almost constant way, elevates things and disparages the value of other things all at the same time. Things like cars and art, clothing styles, hairstyles, they can come and go whether we place high value on them or low value on them. And most of the time, really, that all that has to do with is preference. But one thing that our culture, one thing that our world often disparages the value of, overtly and sometimes subtly, is people. Subtly and not so subtly, this darkness, this is wickedness of this, is that the value of people of any kind really, though, isn't something that should rise or fall. It shouldn't rise or fall, but instead, the valuing of people should be held in high regard always and forever and for all people. Why? Well, simply this. Because God, the creator of all of life, all humanity, of all kinds, God values all people always. And that's what we're going to see in and through God's word this morning. And as we do, I think we're going to have the opportunity to worship. We'll have the opportunity to be in awe of God. But as we dive into this, we're also going to have to deal with some hard realities. Some hard realities that hit, will hit home for our country, for our church, and even for our very own lives. But listen, the goal today is not to beat anyone up. It's not to tear anyone down. The goal of today is not to be political. The goal of today is to bring hope. And the goal of today is to call us to be a church of conviction and compassion that leads to action. A church of conviction and compassion that leads to action. So let me make a request of you, though, before we jump into our text this morning. No matter where you find yourself on the spectrum of some of the things that we're going to discuss and talk about today— I just want to ask you to set aside any preconceived beliefs, any preconceived feelings or notions on these topics and listen. Not specifically to me, but listen to God. Listen to his word. Listen to his spirit as it works in and through the preaching of his word this morning. So I hope you have your Bible still open to Genesis chapter 1. That's where we're going to be, the text that Adrian just read. And may God bless the preaching of his word this morning. When we come to our text today... It's in the middle of telling of a story, and it's the story of creation. The eternal, all-powerful God has spoken all of creation into existence by the power of the word of his mouth. He's simply spoken, and out of nothing, everything has been made. Light and darkness, sky, land, and sea, plants and animals. And then we get to verse 26 of chapter 1, and we see the first telling of the pinnacle of God's creation, the creation of human beings. And it's in this final act of speaking of all of creation that we just heard that God declares the truth we just heard read in verse 26. Let me read the beginning of it again. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. God said, let us, this is talking about the Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, united as the Trinity, bringing about the creation of humanity. Now, when it says the word man here, it isn't specific to males. It's a term used to encapsulate the Hebrew word, to encapsulate all of humanity. 
And as we see very clearly in verse 27, the creation of humanity is about creating both male and female. Now this in and of itself is absolutely amazing. I mean, if we think about the complexity of the human body and mind, all those things that God spoke that into existence, that in and of itself should produce worship in us, awe in us. But there's more to the creation of humanity than just that. It says our triune God has created humanity in his image. And what does it mean to be created in the image of God? The other day, I was going to pick up my son. He was playing at a friend's house up the street, and this family uh, has a nanny. And, and I hadn't met her before, and so we were chatting, and she says, Oh my goodness, Owen looks so much like your wife, and Isaac looks so much like you. Now, both of my boys also have blue eyes, because I have blue eyes. They have blonde hair, because I, when I had hair, and when I was younger, had blonde hair. To be made in the image of God is about bearing a resemblance to God. A resemblance to him. Or as the beginning of verse 26 says, after his likeness. And so human beings aren't the same as God, but similar to him. Just like my kids aren't me, but they are similar. They look like me. They look like my wife. So to be made in the image of God is to be similar in character, similar in attributes, similar in capacity. And it's this that sets humanity apart from all of the rest of creation. But any any similarities that you and I have to God are likeness in kind, but not in degree. Likeness in kind, but not in degree. In other words, humans have the ability to be creative, but none of us can create something out of nothing. None of us can bring a world into existence. We have the ability, to, the ability to know, we have the ability to have knowledge, but none of us have exhaustive knowledge. None of us can know all things or fix all things. Additionally, any similarities we have with God are all derivative. In other words, we have the capacity and the ability to be creative because God is creative. He's our creative creator. And all humans bear the same basic human traits that come from the one true God who made them. We are all a reflection of God, but we are not God. But what this all means is that because we bear the image of God, we are also spiritual beings. We're able to have a relationship with God. That also sets us apart from the rest of creation. No other aspect or entity of creation relates to God in this way. But in addition to that, God also gives us a call and command because of the fact that we bear his image. We learn this in verse 26 and verse 28. Humans are given a charge, a role, precisely because they are image bearers. They're called to rule with God over creation, to be vice regents, having dominion over the physical land, over animals and over plants. They will serve with God. They will serve like God, but they'll be under God's rule, under God's authority, under God's good design. And then verse 27 provides a bit of a poetic description of what took place. The author is really driving his point home here. He's saying all people, men and women, are made in the image of God because all people, men and women, come from the first man and woman created. This means that the image of God is most fully even realized then in male and female. Male and female. 
Now certainly we see this in the context of marriage, but even in addition to that, the wider function of society, and I would say even most specifically in and through the body of Christ. In a redeemed sense, that as men and women learn to be in relationship with one another, not just romantic relationship, but be brothers and sisters in Christ, that we more fully glorify God as we image the image of God to the world around us. As we show the world what it looks like to embody the beauty of the image of God within us. And we see in verse 28 that God blesses them and he commissions them. He says, be fruitful and multiply. God's essentially giving them this cultural mandate, create culture to permeate the earth and create humans to populate the earth. All image bearers, all reflecting God and his glory, all a part of God's good design in all of this before sin enters into the world. So what's significant about the fact that all humans are image bearers of God? Well, to bear the image of God is to be human. But the inverse is also true. If you are human, then you bear the image of God. All people, every human being. There's no qualification for this. There's no disqualification for this. No prerequisites except to be conceived. When an egg is fertilized by a sperm, there the image of God is. And there the image of God remains throughout the life of that person. Every man, every woman, every child of every ethnicity and every social class. What this means then, though, is that all human beings have inherent value. All human beings have inherent value because all human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation and made in his image. All people then should be cherished. All people then should be prized simply because they're human, not because of their utility, not because of what they can offer or what they can do, not because of what they can contribute to society or culture or anything like that, simply because someone is a human being made in the image of God, they're to be cherished and prized, simply because God himself values them. Now, the truth of Genesis 1, 26 and 28 then requires, it, it mandates, it demands that we as human beings take all human beings, as one scholar says, infinitely seriously. We take all human beings infinitely seriously. And again, that should lead us to worship. It lead us, should lead us to celebration. That as you and I look out on our world, the seven billion people that populate the world today, that we would stand in awe that we would stand in awe of the beauty and the purposefulness of God's creativity in and through humanity. And that we would worship our great God for masterfully creating. We would also celebrate the richness of his creation in the diversity of men and women, young and old. The multiplicity of ethnicity and skin color and subsequent culture that comes from all of these beautiful differences. See, as God's people, we're never called to be colorblind, but celebrators of color and culture because our God does. But there's a problem. These vice regents of God that he created and called did not want to be like God and under his authority. They wanted to be God and throw off his authority. In Genesis chapter 3, we see this rebellion unfold like a slow-motion car wreck that caused a cosmic fracture. 
Sin entered into God's good creation through the hearts of his people, and it broke everything that it touched. Physical creation is broken. Humanity's ability to know God and be in relationship with him is broken, and human relationships with one another are broken. So now, every last person in the world, not only that is made in the image of God, they also inherit the sin of Adam. And the sin of Adam is pervasive in all people. It distorts the image of God in all of us. All of us are jacked up now. But it also distorts how we view God. It distorts how we view ourselves. It distorts how we view and relate to one another. When it comes to ourselves, it's like looking at your reflected image in a mirror, but, but that mirror that's it's been shattered, it's been broken, it still refracts light. The image is there, but it's distorted and contorted. Then when we look at others around us, it's like looking at a beautiful, colorful, robust tapestry, intricately and purposefully and masterfully created to reflect a spectrum of beauty and depth. But it's a tapestry that's been vandalized. It's been torn and shredded. Someone has smeared dirt and mud and spray paint all over it. And so when we look at this tapestry that's supposed to be beautiful, that's supposed to invoke awe within us, oftentimes what we see is dirt and think, ugh, I don't like that. I'm really kind of repulsed by it. But see, the problem is, is that we often forget that what we see is not the way it's supposed to be or supposed to look. We look at that broken mirror reflecting back a broken image of ourselves and we forget that it's broken because of sin. We look at that torn tapestry shredded and tattered and think this must be what the author intended, the artist intended. It doesn't make any sense to me, but we forget that it's been vandalized because of sin. And see, God calls us and Jesus reiterates to us that as human beings, what we are called to do chiefly is to love God, the king of all creation, and love others our fellow image bearers, more than we love ourselves. But we'll see what sin does is it seeks to destroy this call. It seeks to destroy this command by inverting it. When sin comes in, it elevates self over God. It elevates self over others. And so now self rules the day. We are self-seeking, self-focused, self-protecting, self-preserving. Now, why are we talking about all of this today? It's good for us to have a good understanding of the image of God and what that doctrine means, what God's word says about that. But why are we talking about this specifically this morning? Well, today is what's come to be known as Sanctity of Life Sunday. And there are two ways that in our world today, the idea and reality that all people are created in the image of God and therefore valued and cherished is either missed or dismissed. The reason that today is Sanctity of Life Sunday is because 45 years ago this month, the decision for Roe versus Wade came down and legalized abortion nationwide. And since that day, there have been approximately 59 million abortions in our country. 59 million million lives lost. It's a modern holocaust of epic proportion. 
I mean, the church, God's people must and should strive to see abortion end in our country, end our, in our generation. And stand up for the unborn, being a voice for the voiceless. See, we need to understand that to be pro-life is to be pro-image of God. Now, I want to be sensitive here because I know there's a lot of different people in the room this morning. Some of you believe and think that abortion is not okay. Some of you likely believe that abortion is okay. Some of you know someone who's had an abortion. Some of you, statistics prove true, have had an abortion yourself or been party to it. But again, my goal, as I said at the beginning, is not to beat anyone up or tear anyone down. My goal is not to be political. This isn't a political issue. The goal of today is to bring hope. The goal of today is to call us to be a church of conviction and compassion that leads to action. And to know that that's even possible because of grace. It's possible because of the redeeming power of our redeeming God. We also need to know that abortion is not the only pro-life issue in our country. If you and I believe the truth of Genesis 1, 26-28, if we believe that in light of sin and its effects that we as God's people are now called to bring kingdom influence, to be bringing the light of the gospel into places of darkness, that we're called to stand up for the sanctity of life, then it must be for all of life. From the womb to the tomb. And it must be for all people. See, the other image-bearing issue that the church must stand up and speak against is racism and racial injustice in all forms, both personal and systemic. You see, the reality is, I think for a lot of us, maybe we think, well, I'm not racist. I don't have racial prejudices towards others personally. And oftentimes we go without speaking to the systemic issues in our culture. We need to understand that also that racial injustice is a pro-life issue. Here's why these two things are related. Because elevating any person over another person because of their age, because of their gender, because of their skin color is anti-image of God. It doesn't uphold the sanctity, the holiness, the, the value of all people who all bear the image of God, whether in the womb or walking around the streets of our neighborhoods. I don't think it should be lost on us that Sanctity of Life Sunday and Martin Luther King Jr. Day fall in the same month and within the same week. See, only when we see all people as created in the image of God do we have a reason for valuing life. Humanism does not do that. Atheism does not promote that. It's only when we understand who God is and what he's called us to and how he's made us that we value all of life. And that we can defend the rights of all people from the womb to the tomb because we believe that all people are to be cherished and prized because all people are made in God's image. The problem, though, is in recent times, the majority culture church, the majority culture church has embraced the call to stand up for, to defend the rights of the unborn as it should but it hasn't connected the dots on the other pro-image-bearing issues that it should. See, historically, while upholding the doctrine of the image of God, preaching on the doctrine of the image of God, pastors and church members have owned slaves. 
have defended slavery and segregation and the subjugation of women or people of different ethnicities. Those two things do not fit together. That is wicked and wrong. But it didn't stop there at the end of slavery in the, in the United States. Martin Luther King addressed the silence of the majority culture, the American church, during the civil rights movement in the 1960s. One of his most well-known writings that was addressing this was his letter from Birmingham jail. I'm going to read part of it to you this morning because even though this was written so many years ago, it still resonates for our issues today. He says, I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods of direct action. Who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom. Who lives by the myth of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a quote-unquote more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. We will have to repent in this generation. Not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of the bad people, but for the appalling silence of good people. It's still a problem today. When pastors will stand up and preach about ending abortion, but then be silent, inactive, or side with and support racist political rhetoric or systemic racial injustice for some seemingly justifiable reason. King again says, the contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch support of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of things as they are. Brothers and sisters, too often the American church has either been silent or on the wrong side of both of these image-bearing issues. And if you are a part of the majority culture, my guess is, is that you have or do fall into this without even noticing. Because that's what it means to have privilege, is that you don't have to think about it. But it's disingenuous for us, disingenuous for us to say that we are pro-life and be against abortion, but silent on the issues of racism and racial injustice in our culture and country. We must advocate for valuing all lives for all of life and especially stand up for those who have no voice or are being marginalized or oppressed because of the way they look or where they come from. 
because oppression of people, whether in the womb or the workplace or communities, must be stated for what it is, sin, and given the healing balm that it requires, the gospel. And that's just it. Like I said a minute ago, this is, these things are not political issues. These are gospel issues. They're gospel issues because our God and King cares about them. They're gospel issues because the only lasting solution to any of this is the gospel. Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, came to dwell among us, taking on humanity. And just in case we forgot, that wasn't with white skin on. And he came in order to rescue and redeem all of humanity. Colossians 1 and Hebrews 1 tell us that he is the exact imprint of God's nature, the very image of God himself. And Jesus went to a cross to die for our sin, to pay the penalty for our rebellion, that we deserve for our rebellion against God. And then he rose again to give us life, to give us freedom, and to give it to all who trust in him. And Colossians chapter 3 tells us that when we place our faith in Christ, when we believe that he died and rose for us to forgive us and set us free from ourselves, to set us free from our selfishness, that what he does in that is he restores the image of God in us. That distorted, contorted image. He, he restores it in us. He makes us new, but he doesn't make us new by changing the way we look. He makes us new by changing our hearts. And he's doing that right now among not just one group of people. No, he's redeeming and restoring people from every tribe, every language, every nation, all skin colors, men and women. And the rescuing grace of Jesus, who saves you, not because you deserve it, not because of who you are, but because of the lavish love of God for you, is the same transforming grace that now enables you to love all people and declare the dignity of all people to repent and walk forward in faith. So listen, if you've had an abortion, God's grace is sufficient for you. Jesus came to redeem you and to restore you. If you've been racist in some way, had a racial prejudice or promoted racial injustice, whether that's actively or passively, overtly or subtly, Jesus came to redeem you, to restore you. So do you know him? Have you placed your faith in him? Because when you have, out of your brokenness, he then raises you up to new life. And he gives you a new purpose to shine the light of the king and his kingdom into a dark and broken world. To tell your story of brokenness and redemption. That God, our God, saves to the uttermost. And that he saved and redeemed you and will come again to make all things new. So now we as God's people here and now, redeemed and restored, must be willing to engage in and address both of these image-bearing issues living out the ethic of our king and his kingdom until he comes again. And we have to do so with both gospel compassion and conviction. Standing up for justice and the truth of the gospel, but doing so with love. If we fight for justice and fight for truth, but lack love, then Paul says we're just a resounding gong, just a noise. We're called to do both of those things. 
because it's the truth of the gospel that compels us and calls us to be merciful to all of our neighbors as we've received mercy from God. So what might this look like? Where do we start? Well, honestly, that's way too big of a topic for us to even fully cover right now. But what I want to do is just set you in a direction of action. Set you in a direction of action. So I'm going to give you five things for you to consider. Taking a step forward when it comes to these things. The first is to invest and support. Invest and support. There are a lot of ways that you can get involved in both of these things that are going on in our country, going on in our culture today. I'd encourage you to check out the AND campaign. A-N-D, AND campaign. It's an organization and movement to see a gospel-centered worldview that is committed to both redemptive justice and values-based policy. Get involved with something like the Psalm 139 Project. They're providing ultrasound machines to pregnancy centers. There's a conference that's just been happening this last week. They just raised over $300,000 to give towards supplying pregnancy centers with ultrasound machines to help women see that they have a life within them. Locally, you can get involved in something called the Naomi Project. It's an, a, a, an opportunity to train women to be mentors to other young mothers who need care and support during the time leading up to and after having a baby. Listen, similarly, we can't say we're pro-life against abortion and not care for every life involved in that. It's the baby and the mom and the dad. We need to be a church that's willing to say we don't want you to abort your baby or kill your baby. We'll take your baby and you and we'll love you and we'll care for you. Come, be a part of this family. You can get involved with something that we have in the back today through Assist Pregnancy Center. Assist Pregnancy Center runs something called a baby bottle campaign. And it's going to be going from January 21st today through March the 4th. The idea is that before you leave today that you would grab an actual baby bottle and you would go home and you would fill it up with change or dollar bills and put it in there. And money is going to be raised to help support the ministry of the pregnancy center. You can bring that back by March the 4th. It's a great way to involve kids, that they would celebrate life, that they would seek to care for and show mercy to those who are in need of mercy. So Amy and Shannon will be in the back today at the table in the back. They'd love to tell you more about that and also how you could get involved in serving at Assist Pregnancy Center, which leads to our second thing, second way that you can get involved in these things, is to go volunteer to Pregnancy Center. Assist Pregnancy Center is a local center. There's a bulletin insert in your bulletin today that tells you more about what they do and, and what they're about. And so you can get involved there. They provide care and counsel, medical advice, and the hope of the gospel to women and men who are in crisis. And there are tons of ways that you can work with them, whether volunteering or being a counselor, administrative help. You can donate financially as well. Assist Pregnancy Center also provides abortion recovery programs that I would recommend as well. The third thing you can do to take a step towards action is humbly listen, learn, and repent. Humbly listen, learn, and repent. Listen, when it comes to issues of racial injustice, majority culture people don't have to listen and learn. That's what it means to be in a majority culture. Again, that's what it means to have privileges. You don't, you don't have to pay attention to that. Propaganda, the 
spoken word and rap artist says this in the most recent song, most don't notice the system until it turns against them. If you're in the majority culture, that often is not the case for you. But as Christians, we must pay attention. As followers of Jesus, we must listen and learn. And there are so many good books out right now that are addressing racial injustice in our country. We're actually going to give one away today. You can pick up a book like The New Jim Crow, or Notes of a Native Son, or The Myth of Equality. There's an article that uh, Erwin Camacho just sent me recently that I would recommend to anyone who's in the majority culture. It says, what white children need to know about race. So I can send that to you. Email me and I'll email it to you. You can talk to Erwin himself and he could send it to you as well. Go download and listen to Show Baraka's latest album, The Narrative, or Propaganda's latest album, Crooked. Subscribe to a podcast like Pass the Mic or Truth's Table. If you have Netflix, go watch 13th to learn about our criminal justice system and the systemic injustices that take place there. One of the easiest things you can do is sit down over coffee or a meal with a person of color or someone from a different culture. Admit your ignorance and ask them to help you understand and to learn. And then ask this question of yourself, where have I knowingly or unknowingly contributed to the oppression of others? That might be the biggest step you can take today, is to ask yourself that question. The fourth thing we can do is we can pray. We can go before the Lord of all creation regularly and often and pray that the culture of death that exists in our country would be transformed to a culture of life. Our God cares about this. Let's go before him and pray. We can pray for men and women who are in such dark and desperate places that they're contemplating abortion. We can pray that those who would march in white nationalist marches and disparage the image of God and others would actually repent and turn to faith in Jesus. God does that work. Let's pray and ask him to do that. And fifth and finally, we can speak up and speak out. Martin Luther King, again, has a poignant exhortation for the church. He writes, If the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. Our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. Listen, the gospel preaching church is being moved more and more to the margins in our country. We've talked about that before. But that's an okay place for us to be. In fact, it's a good place for us to be because God's people thrive in the margins when they identify with the marginalized. They begin to shine the light of the gospel into dark places. Because church, this place is not our home. We don't find our joy and our comfort in this. And one day, the brokenness that we find all around us will be repealed. But until that day, Until that day, we are called to bring the influence of the kingdom by praying, Lord, may your kingdom come, and then by taking up the cause of our king. And as you and I seek to be kingdom-minded people together, what that should do is confound the political left and the political right. The political left oftentimes says, or at least acts as if they care about racial injustice. The political right says, or often acts as if they care about the rights of the unborn. We as God's people say, yes, we care about both of those things, not because they fall into a political camp, but because Jesus calls us to. So we would stand up for both of those things and leave people on both sides of the aisle scratching their heads. 
And we can say the only reason, the only answer for that is Jesus. See, to be pro-life is to be pro-image of God. And that means that we cherish all of life from the womb to the tomb. But we don't just do that once a year. We don't just do that when it's spotlighted. Because each and every day when you wake up, God is calling you to do something in particular that we talked about earlier. He's calling you to love God and love others more than you love yourself. Because we know that one day, because of what Christ has done for us, that we will stand before the throne of our gracious God in a place that is without sin. A place where there's no more crying, no more pain, no more oppression, no more abortion, no more racism, no more injustice, no more death. And we will stand as a beautiful mosaic of people unified by grace. Revelation 7, after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. May that be so. And come, Lord Jesus. Every week at Sojourn, we take communion together. Because every week at Sojourn, we need to be reminded of the grace of the gospel. Jesus' body was broken. His blood was shed to break down the dividing wall of hostility. To recreate a people and bring peace and unity. We eat this bread and we drink this cup to remember the sacrifice that he made for us so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be set free and brought together as the beautiful family of God. And so I invite you to come forward this morning as a follower of Jesus. But before you take communion, take a moment to confess to the Lord where you have not valued other image bearers of God. Take a moment where you have to confess where you maybe have chosen to be silent or complicit to injustice toward other image bearers. But then come and be reminded that there is grace to you for you and that God is at work. For those of you that are not followers of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward this morning because when we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we're declaring that our only hope is in Jesus. And so if you haven't yet placed your hope and your faith in Jesus, then we would just ask you to hang out in your seat and pray to God, ask him to reveal himself to you. And if you're ready to take that step of faith to become a follower of Jesus, then tell God that and then let somebody around you know. We'd love to journey with you and help you understand what it looks like to both know and follow Christ in all of life. Those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables at the front or the tables in the back. Tear off a piece of bread. Take a cup to drink. And what Christ has done for you, what he's done for all people from every tribe, language, and nation will be spoken over you this morning. Then we'll continue to sing together. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. And Lord, Lord, first and foremost, we just repent We repent of where we have not valued other image bearers, either overtly or subtly. Father, we repent of where we haven't spoken up and spoken out, where we've been silent or complicit to injustice in our country. Lord, help us to be a people that so value, that so believe in the reality, the image of God in all people, that we would cherish all people, that we would prize all people. 
and seek to defend and stand up for those who don't have a voice or are marginalized in their voice, oppressed. May we take up your cause, Jesus, as the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is redeeming people from every tribe, language, and nation. Lord, heal us. Heal our country. Bring restoration. Bring redemption. Help our church to be a voice of truth and justice bathed in love for all people. Thank you for the beauty of your diverse global family that you allow us to be a part of because of what Christ has done for us. We pray all this in his name. Amen.